Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week, Sunak slashes aid spending. Sticking rigidly to spending 0.7% of our national income on overseas aid is difficult to justify to the British people. But there's more pain to come. And you cannot just carry on committing yourself to the manifesto. They should be getting the... They're going to have to raise taxes. And Boris Johnson reveals his plans for a Covid Christmas. It is the season to be jolly, but it is also the season to be jolly careful. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hello Paul. Rachel Wearmouth's also here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel and we're delighted to be joined by the Conservative former Cabinet Minister Andrew Mitchell. Hi and nice to see you all. Hi Andrew. Well it's been a pretty bleak week as Rishi Sunak announced his one-year spending review as well as confirming that the UK has suffered the worst economic downturn in 300 years as a result of coronavirus the Chancellor began the task of balancing the books. The review saw Sunak confirm that he will freeze the pay of more than a million non-NHS public sector workers next year and scrap the UK's commitment to spending 0.7% of national income on overseas aid. But there was a sense that the big pain was still to come once the UK is through its COVID Christmas, with overall spending still rising. Let's just listen to the Chancellor explain the cut in aid spending. Prioritise our limited resources on jobs and public services, sticking rigidly to spending 0.7% of our national income on overseas aid is difficult to justify to the British people, especially when we're seeing the highest peacetime levels of borrowing on record. I have listened with great respect to those who have argued passionately to retain this target. But at a time of unprecedented crisis, government must make tough choices. I want to reassure the House that we will continue to protect the world's poorest. Spending the equivalent of 0.5% of our national income on overseas aid in 2021, allocating £10 billion at this spending review. And our intention is to return to 0.7% when the fiscal situation allows. Based on the latest OECD data, the UK would remain the second highest aid donor in the G7, higher than France, Italy, Japan, Canada and the United States. Uh, Paul, what did you make of the spending review? Well, I thought actually the one thing that struck me more than anything else was, as well as the sheer scale of the borrowing that uh, Britain's got to undergo to deal with COVID, is just how much the Dominic Cummings era lives on. The sort of 
but to put it bluntly, the cynicism of the Cummings era lives on, even though he's departed. Um, you've got this emphasis on a sort of culture war about foreign aid, c- c- trying to make that uh, a, a trade up with levelling up. And it was a direct quid pro quo, the way they presented it. And some MPs like um, Ben Bradley and Mansfield presented it directly as a quid pro quo. The four billion aid cut going directly to a four billion levelling up fund. Now, that, that was deeply cynical, I thought. Um, the, the stress that the only people who work in the public se- sector who are worth the pay rise are the NHS. Again, the Cummings focus on just the NHS is the only thing that matters. Um, so I thought that actually, given that um, Rishi Sunak is supposed to be Mr. Nice Guy, there wasn't much Mr. Nice Guy overall. And I, I, I don't sure what, whether that's just him throwing red meat to the Tory backbenches for future leadership or what. But um, put it this way, it, it, I don't think he's, he's done that well out of it. Yeah, Andrew, uh, you're obviously former International Development Secretary and you've been critical of this uh, move to cut aid spending. Can you just explain why, first of all? Well, there are, there are so many reasons. And uh, also, um, it, is a, it is a four billion uh, figure, which is 1% of the likely debt this year. And as the former Prime Minister said yesterday, it's a promise we don't have to break. And so I think, you know, it was a manifesto commitment, but more important than that, it was, was that it was a promise to the poorest people in the world. And, you know, back in 2010, when we were going through a time of great austerity and, and park for one moment, whether you agree or disagree with that austerity, but we were going through a period of very great austerity and cutting budgets, mm. one out of every three pounds we were spending uh, was borrowed. And yet uh, we declined to balance the books on the backs of the poorest people in the world. And I'm incredibly proud of having served in a government coalition where we, did, we didn't balance the books in that way and we stuck to our promise to the poorest people. Now, so I think, I think you know, it's unnecessary. It's a big mistake. Uh, with the Biden White House and the reset internationally where Biden has made it clear he wants to rejoin the world health organization. He wants to uh, rejoin the Paris Climate Change Accord. He wants to reset the international agenda. And at the point where Britain is taking over the chairmanship of the G7 group of nations, we've got the COP in Glasgow next November. We're going to be the chair at the United Nations Security Council. At the very moment when we have an opportunity to showcase global Britain, show Britain's leadership in an area where we have been very much a sort of development superpower around the world. What are we doing? We're making this measly, nasty cut uh, to taking away from the poorest people um, in the world. And what does it mean? You know, we've already had a a, a reduction this year of three billion pounds in development spending because quite rightly, the 0.7 reflects the state of our economy. So it's quite right that, you know, inevitably we have to cut our cloth. And so that has gone down. But this is a further 30% cut. And it's a cut. If it's a cut across the board, you know, what does it mean? It means, for example, that we will have to take nearly a million girls out of school in the poorest parts of the world. It will mean that 7.6 million girls and women don't get access to contraception that Britain has promised. It will mean that 2 million mainly children who are on the brink of starvation or at any rate deeply malnourished, they won't get the food that they need and the humanitarian support. And it will mean that 3.8 million people will not get access to clean water. Dirty water and waterborne diseases kill thousands of children every day in the world. And it will mean that 3.8 million of them won't get saved next year. And, 
you know, in, in, in the days of the Cameron government, there was one person getting clean water in the poorest parts of the world for every single person in the United Kingdom. And the effect of all of this is that we will preside over 105,000 uh, preventable deaths, entirely preventable. And I, for one, am not prepared to sign up to that choice. And I don't believe we'll be able to look our children in the eye making that choice because no one who votes on this thing will be able to avoid the fact that they knew what the effect of this would be. It's a nasty, measly, morally wrong, bad for British interests cut, and it should be reversed. Yeah, Andrew, you mentioned a vote there. Um, Rishi Sunak suggested this morning that existing legislation might cover his plans to cut aid spending because it's um, kind of exceptional circumstances due to the coronavirus pandemic. What's your understanding there? Do you think the government has to legislate to do this? And are you going to try and stop it? Well, you know, obviously, there's a lot of colleagues talking together and the number of people who would uh, vote against this cut um, is rising. But I don't know yet how extensive the rebellion will be. And of course, uh, it doesn't put the government in a very good light that they're trying to weasel out of having a vote in the House of Commons. So, you know, that will not that will not be to the government's uh, credit. Now, on the point you make about legislation, I was part of the team that drafted the legislation, which the government now wants to roll back. And the point they're fastening on is that if the government doesn't meet the 0.7 target, a minister has to come to the House of Commons and explain it. And that's what it says in the legislation. And so they're arguing that they can then do that and that these are exceptional circumstances. But the problem for the government on this is that the legislation is drafted in a way that uh, if you try to subvert it from the beginning, so you know you're going to not meet the target, uh, then, um, uh, then that is not uh, in accordance with the legislation. The legislation is missing the targets unintentionally. And the result of that will be that the many of the philanthropic bodies and the charities, they will judicially review the government. And I think that the judges would be likely, you never quite know what judges will do, but I think the judges would be likely to uphold the law and say the government was breaking the law if they did that. And if you think about it, it's quite a logical position because you can't put in legislation that if the minister doesn't meet the target, you know, he'll be... He'll, he'll be given six of the best or hanged or something. You've got it. You've got the type of comments. It's got to have a mechanism for, for getting the minister to the dispatch box to explain themselves. And then the House of Commons can take action. And the House of Commons could, for example, uh, vote down the proposal or they could uh, have no confidence in the minister, or there's an arcane procedure by which they could cut the minister's salary by 10% because he wasn't doing a very good job. But the point of the legislation is to get the minister in front of the House and for the House of Commons, for Parliament, for elected representatives to make a decision about what Parliament expects the government to do. So, Andrew, you're convinced that you do need legislation, you would need new legislation to actually do this cut? I, I think I think that to achieve this, they will need a parliamentary vote. That vote could be on an amendment. It could be on primary legislation. But and of course, the government's got a lot of stuff to do before it gets to that, which I strongly support. It's got all the Brexit legislation, which they'll need January for. So we're not talking about, you know, something that's going to happen in the next few days or weeks. But I, I think they will need a vote and they probably do need legislation. And how many rebels do you think there are at the moment or could be? 
who knows? I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who are reflecting on it, talking to their constituents. You know, there's a very there's a very shallow effort being made to say that the polling shows that 110 percent of the British public are right behind this cut. But of course, it depends on the question you ask. And actually, I think it's rather insulting to the many people in the in the red wall seats who when there's an emergency around the world, when there's flooding or when there's a, a typhoon or when there's a famine, these people raise money. They reach into their pockets to try and help. So the idea, you know, that if you're a red wall Tory, you, you don't care about the poorest in the world is, I think, complete rubbish. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of polling that that uh, goes on and, and then is then manipulated in the way that Paul and I understand so, so clearly. But I'll tell you the polling that I think is the most interesting. The polling in, we did in 2012, after the years of austerity or during the heart of the austerity, where we discovered that during the first two and a half years of the Cameron government, the support for international development policies amongst the public as a whole went up from 46% to just shy of 50%. It was about 49.8%. So it increased in the years of austerity. Uh, amongst women, it went up by much more than that. And amongst people under the age of 35, uh, it went up a lot. Now, that's because ministers, the prime minister, we stood up and we explained to people why this budget on development is in Britain's national interest. It's not just morally the right thing to do. It's in Britain's national interest. And the problem is this. If you have a prime minister who says that, that the development spend is, and I think I quote his words accurately, a great big cash machine in the sky spewing out money. If that's what you tell the public, then of course they're not going to support it because the prime minister's telling them it's wasted and it shouldn't be spent. So, so uh, you know, we need to get a bit more reality into this debate. But the foreign secretary today is making a statement in the House of Commons you know, I, I think the Foreign Secretary must feel pretty sick about the fact that just at the point where Britain has a chance to show what global Britain is, we've advanced making this measly, nasty cut. And yeah. Andrew, just brings me back to the cynicism point I was making earlier. Isn't it deeply cynical for the Chancellor to suggest that obviously we keep saying we are reducing foreign aid spending because of this, when actually... That's exactly the way the system works. It, it, foreign aid spending goes down because GDP's gone down. So it's already going down. That, that is what you built into the system. So all these polls showing the public want aid to be reduced at a time of crisis. Well, that's exactly what happens because the, the automatic system ties it to GDP. Well, I think, I think you put it rather better than me. I mean, that's exactly the point. The, that's the, the point seven reflects the state of our economy. So it's baked in, in a time of difficulties, that development spending goes go, 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 goes down. And, you know, there are people in the charities in our constituencies who don't agree with that. What they say is you're in the middle of a pandemic. You will never defeat COVID here until you defeat it everywhere. And that's the reason for increasing development spending so that we can defeat it in the poorest parts of the world where they don't have health structures like we have in the developed world. But I say to them, you know, I understand the argument, but the reality is we cannot expect the British taxpayer not to adjust development spending to suit the state of the economy. And that's why the point seven is right in, in principle. So, you know, it's a, that's a very important point. Uh, people talk about breaking the manifesto commitment. Every single member of the House of Commons was elected on a commitment to stand by the point seven. The prime minister throughout the campaign said, we will stand by the point seven. I think I'm right in saying within the last month, he said that they will stand by the point seven. So every single member of the House of Commons was elected on that promise. It's uh, 
a promise to the poorest people in the world, which as Bishop Desmond Tutu once said, a promise to the poorest is a sacred thing. Um, but it's also right because of the 0.7 calculation, which Paul just explained very well. Yeah, Rachel, uh, Andrew mentioned red wall voters there, and Paul sort of drew the comparison between the 4 billion being cut from the aid budget and the 4 billion going to this levelling up fund. Uh, what what do you make of this new levelling up fund that's been announced? It has uh, echoes of the Towns Fund from last year. They're using, they're using some of the money from the, the Towns Fund to, to pay for it. Um, it's what, what sort of strikes me about it is that it is, um, it's, it's, it's been tied across three departments, so it'd be very difficult to scrutinise just how they're going to decide who gets what. And they're, they're, they're saying that they're going to publish a document, I think, in the new year. Um, but there was no mention of whether any of this cash is, is sort of, um, would be tied to how what the unemployment rate is like in an area, um, what the deprivation is like in the area, um, child poverty, any of, the, any of these things are just not mentioned whatsoever. Um, so there are, there's a lot of concern from politicians, I know, that the, it, lo it looks like it could just end up looking like a, a re-election fund <laughs> if, if there's not sort of very specific criteria which addresses the societal problems that area has. Um, yeah, yeah I, want, I want some for the royal town of Sutton Coalfield. We've got a big redevelopment in the town centre in Sutton Coalfield. And uh, I, we, we, we bid to the earlier uh, fund and we want some out of this. Uh and Rachel, budgets and spending reviews usually contain some hidden kind of nasties. Were there any in this spending review? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of focus on the, the international aid, and um, but there, there was quite a, quite a few of those in there that would trouble people. The, the uplift in universal credit, the £20 uplift, that looks set to end in April. The, the, the £20 also wasn't um, given to other pe people on other legacy benefits. So it wasn't given to, you know, someone, a disabled person who's on employment support allowance, for example. Um, uh, just going back to the unemployment figures, he thinks there's what, going to be sort of 2.6 million people out of work. But when you look at the adult skills fund, the, the, the cash that they're putting into that, I think it's like 375 million, whereas the Conservative Party manifesto said it was gonna be something more like 600 million. You know, and I know if you sort of look back to other periods, like when we had the loss of big heavy industry, one of the big problems a lot of people had then was that they, they had they didn't have skills to do to do anything else at the time. Um, the Resolution Foundation also put out a, an interesting analysis this morning, which kind of really underlined that this is not an end to austerity. You know, it's I think they said it's going to the COVID crisis is on track to reduce average pay packets by um, one thousand two hundred a year by twenty twenty five. Um, we found that we also found out that a no deal Brexit, which as far as we know is, is going to happen because there's still no trade, trade deal, is going to hit GDP by um, 2%. Two, two um, and I was also just going to mention, yeah, that there's no criteria yet for just how this levelling up cash is going to be spent. So those, those are some of the hidden nasties beyond yeah, the uh, asteroid of awfulness that is the um, cut to international aid. Yeah, uh, Andrew, I just, just wanted to go big picture on the spending review. What, what did you make of it generally in the state of the economy? And do you accept that tax rises are going to have to come down the track, given the state of the public finances? Yeah, yes, generally, as I, as I point I tried to make yesterday in the Chancellor's statement, I'm very supportive of the Chancellor. I think what he's, he's got to, you know, cut his, 
uh, make his purse according to the cut of his cloth or whatever the expression is. Um, but uh, I'm very supportive of that. And I'm also, I don't, you know, there's so much intergenerational unfairness going on. You know, the younger generation, they're having such a tough time. They're the first generation since before the First World War who believe they will be less well off than their parents' generation. And I don't want all this massive debt uh, left for them to pay off. So we've got to be responsible and we've got to accept that we're going to have to pay more tax and also be very rigorous about spending. And I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a, you know, a softie on public spending. It's just that I think the development budget is so incredibly important and so well spent and there's so much misinformation about it. So that's why I stand up for that. But, you know, I, I accept that we've got to make these, these changes and increase tax. And, and, you know, I will be voting with the government when they have to make those tough decisions on, on tax, so long as they're fair and they're right, and they accept our generation's responsibility for making huge inroads into cutting this debt. I mean, you've got to see it in a bit, a bit like war debt, which after all was only finally paid off when George Osborne was chancellor. So, you know, we need to, we need to identify what we've had to spend on this crisis and segregate it and work out a way of, of paying that off. But it needs to be one that, that, you know, my generation, our generation's shoulder and don't leave for the young. Yeah, interestingly, you talk about intergenerational fairness there. Do, do you think the pensions triple lock should stay? There's been much speculation over the last year or so that that might be in line for the chop. Well, I think everyone's got to share in the pain and we have got to protect the least well-off pensioners from pensioner poverty, which is a terrible thing for people at the end of their life, often in indifferent health, to have to suffer. So we have got to protect and put a floor under pensions. But I, I'm afraid I would, I would say that the triple lock is, is not uh, sacred. It's, it's got to be looked at along with everyone else. And in the end, the Chancellor's job is to impose a, a, a difficult but fair burden across society. And particularly in the aftermath of this dreadful pandemic, he will need demonstrably to do that. Well, yeah, we must move on because it's been a huge week for the government because alongside the spending review, Boris Johnson revealed his plans to replace England's lockdown with a new, tougher version of the tiered local restrictions that we had before the four-week break. Uh, the four nations of the UK also agreed to provide a five-day respite from COVID restrictions, allowing three different households to meet up for Christmas between December the 23rd and the 27th. But some are now wondering whether it's worth relaxing the rules for Christmas and running the risk of killing granny when a vaccine is so close. Let's hear sage scientist Andrew Hayward. It's a virus that's dangerous for older people. We're still in a country where we've got high levels of infection with COVID, particularly in young people. And bringing them together for hours, let alone days, with elderly relatives, I think is a recipe for regret for many families. I think families have a choice here. Uh, my personal choice would be to wait safely. There's a vaccine coming. I will get together with my family when they've been vaccinated and we can have a proper get together at Christmas and for uh, Easter and for many other Christmases to come. I think the danger is with the vaccine on the way being highly successful, if we're not very careful over Christmas, we're really in danger of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory on this one. Uh, Paul, in that clip, uh, Andrew Hayward, the SAGE uh, scientific advisor, says the Christmas relaxation is, is a recipe for regret. Is he right? Well, um, I think he'll only be right if uh, a, a more than a small minority actually break the rules over Christmas uh, and actually uh, 
exploit the rules, should we say, to the max. A lot of people look at this and, and thinking, well, what am I going to do? I think a lot of people are going to be very cautious. They won't use the full um, ability the government's given them over Christmas. They won't necessarily do all three households. I suspect a lot of people with elderly relatives will try and protect them. I think a lot of people are going to be very, very wary and not going to go crazy. I mean, when I asked Chris Whitty about this on Monday at the, the Downing Street press conference, he said people shouldn't, quote, go wild over Christmas. And uh, it's a bit like Jonathan Van Tam saying, don't tear the pants out of it. Now, unfortunately, people did tear the pants out of it in the summer. We saw those packed beaches in Bournemouth. We saw people coming back from holiday as if the rules didn't exist um we saw eat out to help out you know packed and rammed restaurants people really did tear the pants out of it and even just before the lockdown was announced in the few days that people had uh, they went out shopping in great numbers and, and went to leisure uh, facilities in great numbers so the problem is can the public once if you give them an inch will they take a mile or will they even take the full inch i suspect a lot of people this christmas will take half an inch and they'll be quite cautious there's a lot of individual response responsibility and if there is a sort of new year hangover as a result of christmas i think that the prime minister is going to be in quite a lot of trouble because that ultimately don't forget the big picture here is that for the first time in his life boris johnson is actually having to take responsibility for something he's done and the one thing he's got responsibility for well the two things are brexit and the covid pandemic and on both of those things we're going to find out in the next few months just how successful he's been yeah, big few months coming up for the Prime Minister, Andrew. But where are you on, on the situation with the COVID restrictions now, Andrew? Um, we're going back to tiers and it looks like most of the country is going to be in the middle or highest tiers. And do you think that's the right approach? And do you think it's right to relax the rules temporarily for Christmas? It's quite a big relaxation to go from tougher tiers to to uh, three households, I suppose. Well, I start from the basis that I don't like all this sort of authoritarian language of snitching and, uh, you know, <laughs> dobbing in your neighbour and uh, lockdowns and bans and restrictions. I don't like all that sort of stuff. I much prefer to rely on the good sense of of the British public, on, on, on a, a desire for social solidarity. And for me, the answer is to say to people, look, be responsible, wear a mask as often, all the time you possibly can, wash your hands, keep a distance from uh, people, particularly older people or, or frail people, keep a distance from them, but use your good sense. That would be my preferred uh, position. But I, and I wanted, I, I sort of wanted to do the right thing by my constituents uh, when the tier system was brought in um, and the lockdown, the second lockdown took place because um, I, uh, when I saw what Boris had seen and the advice of the scientists and the epidemiologists, I don't think any prime minister could ignore that. So I supported the government on the second lockdown um, uh, and uh, with some difficulty. But I, as I say, I just don't think any prime minister can ignore that. But um, uh, the, the uh, idea that at Christmas you can't hug the people you love and that you can't be with the people you love, you know, is for, for, you know, for many people, they'll be able to ride through that and they'll be able to survive. But, you know, for other people in life, not being able to see the people you love at Christmas time and hug them and hold their hands and so on. I mean, it's a terrible thing for society to do. So, so you've really got to be clear on any restrictions really over Christmas that the cost of those restrictions doesn't exceed the very sort of essence of life which in terms of family and so forth, which Christmas enshrines. Yeah, it's the old, um, don't make the cure worse than the disease, I suppose. Yes, very good way of putting it. 
Yeah, um, uh, Rachel, you were in a briefing about the Christmas rules. Uh, there are some questions over how it's actually going to work because people are going to be trying to get around the country on trains and so on, but having to maintain a social distance. Do you think the government has a plan? Uh, I, I think, that, um, that, well, there's the, the, we, it's a sort of five-day period for, you know, mainland Britain, so 23rd to 27th of December. There was a bit of... Um, extra time for those who would go, who would be going to Northern Ireland, so they would get sort of from the 22nd to the 28th. But this is sort of a very packed period of time. So, um, yeah, and we asked we asked if there was if there were any extra trains, you know, if they'd kind of put on extra, any extra transport. That's not the case. But I think it we sort of touched on the approach that the government want people to take already, and that they've just said people should plan sensibly. Um, and you know whether that leads to people car sharing, whether that leads to people maybe getting a train a little earlier. <laughs> um, I think um, they also sort of said they were asked if they planned to meet out lots of fines for those people who break these rules, and they said um, that that wasn't you know that wasn't the approach that they were going to be asking police forces to take. It was going to be only the most egregious cases um, where that people would be handed fines. Um, so. It just seems that, like like we've been saying, it seems they want people to just be sens as, as sensible as possible. Yeah, there has been good news on vaccines this week. Andrew, do you think, but the government has said they, they expect the tiered system to last until spring, but if we can roll out vaccines quickly and vaccinate the vulnerable, do you think there's scope for for maybe loosening the restrictions sooner than April, say? Well, I, I, you know, I, I don't think you want a politician you know, shooting by the seat of his pants on this. You've got to take the advice of the experts. Uh, we're lining up... Oh, go Royal on, Sutton. Andrew. <laughs> we're lining up the Royal Sutton Coalfield Town Hall, which is a wonderful building in, in my part of the world, to be a centre for vaccinating my constituents. And I, I want, obviously, as soon as the vaccines are approved, we want to get people in there, getting vaccinated, starting with the most vulnerable and the elderly, and then working our way through everybody. And... Uh, I'm wholly opposed to those who say that who, that, who argue the toss about vaccines. I think it's a very dangerous argument. Everyone must be vaccinated. That's uh, right for them and right for their neighbours. So uh, as soon as we can, we need a really well-run and efficient system uh, and getting everyone vaccinated as quickly as we can. But in terms of your point about whether we can take risks ahead of that, um, I need to see the science and hear the advice. Right. Well, uh, we're running out of time, so let's move on to the quiz. And this week's is all about the festive period in honour of the government uh, announcing its plans for Christmas. Uh, so just just uh, shout the answer if you know it. Uh, which council coined the controversial term Winterval in the 1990s? Must oh be Islington, God. surely. It, was it, what, was it what was that? What was that, Andrew? I said it must be Islington, surely. Jeremy no. Corbyn land. I no. was going to say Lambeth. No, incorrect. Anyone else um, want the guess? Greater Manchester? No, it was uh, Birmingham City Council. Oh. I might have guessed. I might have guessed. Andrew, yeah. you should have known that. Yeah. I thought, so... even, I thought even Birmingham City Council wouldn't wouldn't have done that. <laughs> well, the, the council... Remember, remember, that, remember that in Sutton Coalfield, we're an ancient royal town bolted on to Birmingham, but only for local government purposes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, in 2009, Alex Salmond was accused of politicising Christmas. Why? Oh, God. Was this, was, he, was this about the Queen's visit to Balmoral? No. No, he wouldn't dare. Alex wouldn't dare. 
He wouldn't dare. <laughs> There's a lot of things he would dare do, but that's not one of them. <laughs> I've got there no are, idea. There are, there are limits. <laughs> this is a tough one. It was probably something that only really reached the Scottish papers, but um, he ha- sent out a Christmas card featuring a painting depicting a girl carrying a saltire flag over her shoulder. And Ooh. the Scottish Conservative chief whip at the time accused him of trying to politicise Christmas. Uh, here's a final one. Uh, the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, courted controversy at a party, Christmas party, in 2015. Why? Oh, was it a Stop the War Christmas party? No, it was a Labour Christmas party. Uh, oh, was this the one with the press where he... I don't know. He did, did, he, did, he, did, he, did, he, did he sing the red flag instead of a Christmas carol? It's, it's <laughs> right, I'm going to give you a clue because it's a, a difficult quiz this week. But... He told staff, this year will be tougher than last year. Why is that controversial? I've got no idea. Okay. Another clue. clue. It's a very difficult quiz. Uh, I can't really give you another clue without giving the answer, so I'll just give you the answer. It was that he he was quoting the Albanian communist dictator, Enver Hoxha. Big news at the time. (laughs) Uh, Enver Hoxha, yes. Hoxha, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, the reason I know it's called Hodja is because they used to call Margaret Hodge Margaret Hodja in her <laughs> left wing days. Yeah, well, Margaret Hodge. Margaret Hodge, of course, was the leader of the Islington Council. So we've in, we've come full the, circle. <laughs> Bit of a tough quiz this week. Sorry, guys. Uh, but yeah, Hodge's New Year message to the Albanian people in 1967 warned that this year will be harder than last year. On the other hand, it will be easier than next year. Uh, sources close to Corbyn said he was quoting it as as a humor as a, a humorous remark, but uh, didn't go down very well, I don't think. Uh, He's famed for his humor. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do know that that year was the last year he did Christmas drinks with with hacks like us. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels, and please be sure to leave a review. And get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with Boris Johnson and the House of Commons having a true 2020 moment. From a friend and uh, the, 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 the Honourable Member for Wickham, uh, who've written a, an excellent letter to me. Many of the points I hope that he agrees in that letter were answered in my a statement about, uh, about sport, the curfew, non-essential uh, retail, gyms, personal... You press the button, Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Right. I think we're just going to have to stop for a moment till we can have it checked. We're just checking the sound, Prime Minister. We lost your answer. Have you pressed the button by mistake? Muted. It's not our M Prime Minister, it could well be yours. I wonder if Mr Hancock would like to take over with the answer. <laughs> it's one of you gonna do it or not. So he's looking at each other. Sorry. We're gonna suspend for three minutes then. Okay.